Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the final webinar in our October series titled How to Be a Better Connector, Strategies for Educators, Parents, and Admins. I'm John Barilloni, the Community Manager for the Connected Learning Alliance, and I'll be our host for today. And throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we've been exploring how educators, parents, and learning environment admins can support the principles and values of connected learning. And today we're going to be chatting specifically values of connected learning into their own daily practice. But as usual, before we dive into our chat, let's just go over a couple quick details. Uh, to those that are watching live right now, we really welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtag um, for Connected Educator Month, CE14, or via the Google Plus event page. And we'll do our best to address you know, as many of your questions as we can here in the Google Hangout. And we're also chatting throughout the month in the Google Plus community called Connected Learning. So definitely jump on Google Plus and, and find that community. It's growing all the time. And before we start, I'd like to give our guests here a chance to briefly introduce themselves. So I'm just going to go from my own left to right. And Kim, do you want to start us off? Sure. My name is Kim Dulard, and I teach um, actually in Cardiff, California, which is a suburb of San Diego. And I have a multi-age class of first, second, and third graders. And um, I'm also the director of the San Diego Area Writing Project, which is part of the National Writing Project. Thanks, Kim. And Lisa? Am I unmuted now? Excellent. So, um, I am Lisa Johnson, and uh, I am Tech Chef for you on Twitter, and I do, I'm basically in Austin, Texas. I'm an educational technologist there. I'm stationed, kind of housed at the high school. Um, we are K through 12, one one iPad, and then I also, you know, kind of speak around the country and do different things of that nature as well. Thanks, Lisa. And last but uh, not least, Sean. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean McCusker. I'm a social studies teacher and department chair at Libertyville High School in Libertyville, Illinois. Uh, I also, like Lisa, travel and do a fair amount of uh, consulting and training for schools. Uh, I spent two years in a one-to-one -one, uh, iPad environment. And then just recently in changing schools, um, we are preparing to just begin a pilot and then go one-to-one -one with Chromebooks next year. So. That's awesome, and uh, feel bad kind of knocking on them. But with Los Angeles, it seems like we've kind of figured out maybe what not to do with that. <laughs> so best of luck on your rollout. Um, so maybe kind of tackling today's conversation a little bit chronologically and in the spirit of Connected Educator Month, I would consider you know all three of you quote-unquote Connected Educators. But taking it back, kind of dialing the clock back a little bit, maybe five or so years ago, you probably didn't have the same exact set of you know, resources or skill sets or community connections that you do today. So in hopes of kind of you know, helping educate some of those who might be newly connected educators or might be just kind of on the fringe of this community, what were some of the biggest, I guess, changes that you feel you've made over the past five years to kind of get to where you are now with your practice and anyone feel free to jump in on this one. Okay, I'll jump. 
Um, I think the biggest change for me is that I used to spend a lot of time creating a path from um, where we began to the, the ultimate end goal in learning. And what being connected did for me is I created stories. I'm a history teacher, so you know, in my mind, a lot of what I do is collect stories and know the stories and help students to interact with those stories to make meaning of the world around them. So as a teacher, the way I see it is that by connecting with so many people, I knew so much of what was potentially possible that when I ran into a situation where something went wrong, it just gave me a great sense of peace to be able to to know or, or, or to have heard a story similar to that. So um, one, it gave me a sense of durability, I think, and flexibility that I think is very powerful and I very much, um, I'm very happy with that portion of being connected. But um, secondly, it gave me the idea that there are multiple paths to where I need to go. And that that allowed me to not focus on the one path that I had planned out, but to be flexible in my planning, in my thinking, in my classroom, uh, at a level that just, you know, I hadn't had that. And so that, um, I don't know what the best word, maybe the, the flexibility that comes with it is the key part of it for me. You know, I, I think one of the key parts for me, I'm just going to jump right in, is, um, you know, it's the, it's the sharing piece. Um, and and the sharing, you know, being, you know, the blogging or, you know, Twitter and those sorts of things. And, and what was really powerful for me was, and, and I still remember the piece about, you know, the more and more that you share, the more apt people are going to want to share with you. And I mean, I mean, that sounds, you know, simple, but it was really powerful. Um, one night I had found this amazing um, presentation of like, they were like iPad task cards and they were like some sort of PPTX nonsense. I mean, it was something I couldn't open. I didn't have time to mess with it. You know, I couldn't get it in a file format. So I was like, ah, so I, you know, I clicked at a blog about it. I said, you know, here it is. If you have this, you can use it, you know? And then I went about my way and did like a session that day. And it was so interesting to me because somebody contacted me on Facebook on, and and basically had converted all of the files and then shared them as I think it was a Google you know slide deck or something that was really easily accessible and it's I mean this is somebody I don't even know and it's because I'm sharing things with other people that people want to share you know with me it's kind of like Kickstarter it's the same sort of concept you know it's that global idea of they want to help you know for the greater good and I, I think that's so powerful I feel like it's also the provides the sort of instant support system that you don't always have right in your local place so that when you're wanting to try something different or something new or something maybe risky um, there's a group out there that is ready to support you offer you um, ideas suggestions um, maybe just say hey I'm, I'm trying something new too just enough to give you encouragement to move on um, and I, I do. I feel like the the all these digital connections just amplify what happened in a lot of ways um, before, but make it so much more instantaneous. And there's so many more people there. You know what, what both of you were talking about kind of made me think. Of, there was a moment where I decided I was going to change over to um, Drive, and we I shared Google Docs, and it was more just a place where I connected with other people. But the real reason I ever slid all my files into Drive was simply I just wanted to share them and let people, 
I wanted to give them to people who needed them, but also I really appreciated when I would share things back that people would tweak it. So anything I gave out always came back to me, but in a much improved format. And I know that that works. Um, I know that that works when it comes to materials for class, but I also know that it worked in terms of policies. And I was just having a conversation with a person on Twitter about um, going one to one and, and when I was going to do it and what devices we were using and. Um, I can't tell you how many times a stranger has just shared something that rocked my world and changed what was happening in my classroom. Um, and that's the power for me. It's the idea that there's treasure in every conversation just waiting to be shared with you. Those are great stories. And to Kim's point and to Sean's point as well, what are some of those you know, maybe go-to sources that you guys are using for uh, peer support for professional development for you know bouncing ideas off of other teachers. Where are you guys going um, specifically online? So, um, so oh. for for me, I'd have to say sorry. Okay. Um, it's interesting for me because I have I have a sort of a ready-made network in some ways, the National Writing Project, but um, that that interconnection that you started out as a face-to-face -face connection has exploded into all of these other connections, especially for Twitter for me. Um, it's a place where I feel like I have um, the, the most varied support system and the most um, dynamic support of, of all the places. I'm, I'm going to have to concur on the Twitter 100%, but what I found over the past year and a half was that while all of us are on Twitter and highly active, the vast majority of educators aren't. And nope. so I felt like I wasn't meeting their needs and my role by only posting things to Twitter. And that's why I created, you know, like a Tech Chef for You Facebook page because the vast majority of educators are on Facebook. And so I found, you know, it's like I, I lead two separate lives because you also have, you know, Twitter and you're sharing different things. But I think both of them have been really, really valuable. And it was actually the Facebook one who ended up converting a document for me and then posting it to everybody else. So um, I think you have to meet people where they are and, and what with social networks that they're using. And and I think it, it's just it's a variety and it's a balance. So um, I I think both are really valuable. I think a concept that both of you kind of touched on is the idea of conversion. Um, we are on Twitter and we're sharing and for me it's been a huge uh, place of support and I think of Twitter as like a, 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 a like my crops and it's where I harvest things and then I have to funnel things down into um, transition into reality. It, it, so long as we sit on Twitter and we just have conversations, if you can't convert that back into your classroom, but then even more broadly to classrooms next to you, we're really limiting our ability to to affect change. And this year, um, I still teach, but I'm uh, a department chair. And it's hard uh, because you're trying to share resources and convert those resources into what um, is happening in the classroom. I mean, it can't just be your need. It means that you have to reach out and network at home in your real school and find out what people need. You know, I could I can share what I've needed, but I need to find out what those around me need and then convert what I see on Twitter into the needs of the people around me. And that's really the challenge for me. Um, and my, my thinking has changed. I was very much inner-focused, and I think that's what's really helped is on Twitter, in addition to in my school, when I start focusing outward, um, I start to understand things more holistically, and that holistic understanding is something that I harvest from Twitter all the time. 
I really, I, I just have, Sean just kind of made me think about something. I know that we're talking about like the, the broader sort of um, connected, but each one of us are actually housed at schools. And so I think the power of this is exactly what Sean said. You know, I build relationships by walking into classrooms and being visible and all of that face-to-face -face interaction to the point then that people just kind of notice things or they'll hear things or when I send them something there's more value and credibility to those resources and now I do have a lot of those educators you know either following me on Twitter or Facebook and and kind of receiving those you know resources that I share but it it didn't start that way and I think the ground level is always building relationships with those teachers and that that face-to-face -face sort of um, you know just interactions and and individual sort of needs that are being met. So I'm, I'm really glad that Sean kind of um, led and brought that up. That's a great point, Lisa. And I forget who exactly said it earlier this month, but uh, it was something along the lines of, you know, being a connected educator does not mean being, you know, the person that shares the most things out on Twitter. It is, you know, that relationship aspect because, you know, any machine or program or bot or script could share resources out all day long, all month long. And, Sean, this is kind of hearkening back to a phrase and a theme that you talked about, about needs. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, all these amazing things you guys have been doing over the past few years and all these connections you've been making, all these obviously ideas and um, pedagogical approaches you guys have been finding um, that kind of ties into student needs and how exactly they're going to be learning best in the classroom and um, this phrase that we all brought up kind of in our conversation together beforehand and something I'm seeing as well in classrooms is this approach that we're calling now student-centered learning. So I kind of wanted to get each of your take on you know, how you see student-centered learning playing out within your own environments and then also what you see as the teacher's role or your role as an instructor within that environment that's more you know, maybe student-led. Um, for me, um, I think that we used to do a lot of learning where it was the teacher and the student learned and it was just localized. And then I think we started realizing when we started looking into the like sharing and uh, emphasis when I was a much younger teacher, the emphasis on cooperative learning. But even then, at best, we took learning that was happening in the classroom and we grouped it into groups of four. And I think that what connected learning translates to for students is the ability to take localized learning in the classroom and contribute it back to that whole. Making your individual learning part of the whole. I mean, the parallel for me is that the what I do on Twitter um, is I just share how I'm learning. I share my growth. And when that growth intersects with somebody else, we intersect and we grow together for a period of time. And then as time goes on, we, we grow off and we grow separately. And in the classroom, what I'm trying to do is take those pairings and those groups and make it so that we have a document, some online document, a blog, uh, a document, um, whatever it is that we need to do to make sure that that learning is available for us in March to go back and see what we did in October, to revisit ourselves and to have a document of our own learning that we're, we're sharing with other people, and if possible, to connect us with other classrooms. So I think that the connected learning is producing something that we contribute to society 
and allowing society to contribute their opinion of, uh, of that growth and how we're moving forward. So um, today I set up my blog. I moved to a new school. It was really hard to get established in this, but I, my classes set up their blogs today, and we've started the process of gathering information that the students choose and posting their interpretations of it, and then tomorrow we're going to go into class, and they're going to go and start um, just commenting on the thoughts of their students and the learning is their thoughts, their comments, their processes and I'm going to sit back and try to tweak the process and become like the contextualizer in chief. We're going to learn the Cong about Congress by they all collected articles, um, they're going to summarize those articles and from the content that they um, harvested we are going to build context about a bigger discussion and it originates with them and so that's kind of the model that I've used and it's hard to I know many teachers see things very differently but I'm a great collector of their opinions of what the future of education means and connecting um, kind of what I've been doing on Twitter probably for the last year now with my um, young students I feel like there's really a continuum of what it means to be connected and it actually starts in the beginning of the year with connecting to each other as a community of learners and really helping students learn not only to share their ideas but also to listen to the ideas of others and that includes the adults in the room and other children in the room so that it's we become a community of learners that um, connect to each other and then we move we continue to move beyond that and connecting to our community and to the world as much as we can as well so that by the time my students generally start blogging more towards uh, the winter time they'll be ready then because they've been building these connections with each other with the community with their families to the school and then we'll we'll reach out beyond that um, as we go on. So I really feel like there's this community of connection, but this uh, continuum of connection that happens in the classroom. Well, and, and at the high school, it's, you know, it's really interesting too, because especially with where we're located in Austin, so we have a lot of not only, you know, online sort of connections that we can make, but we have a lot of in-person connections we can make with students, especially, um, you know, mentorship programs and bringing in speakers and things like that. Um, you know, one of the, the big focuses for us was, you know, kind of a, a girls in technology sort of group, and we brought in somebody to really talk about what that looks like and why that's so important in this day and age. Um, and, you know, so, so connected for for me, especially with secondary students, is, is kind of threefold, um, especially for the juniors and seniors. I really feel like they need to be publishing online, um, have some sort of e-portfolio, and, and not only have an e-portfolio and, and, and an online presence, but have some sort of, you know, like an About Me page or a LinkedIn page, because when it comes down to it, it not all of them know what you know a resume looks like or why they need to have you know an online preference you know online sort of presence and so being connected and and kind of showcasing the ways that they can do that is really really powerful because you know we had such a great um, speaker for Texas and he was mentioning um, just you know, George Kuras and he was mentioning the idea of you know you can have two people and you can have one kid who has a resume and it says he can change a tire and you have another kid who has an e-portfolio 
and videos of him changing a tire, who's going to get hired? Could they both change a tire? Sure. But who's going to get hired? And that's the real message we need to kind of share with kids. If you're not, you know, if your work doesn't exist online, it doesn't exist. And, and that's, um, I'm stealing that from Austin Cleon because he is absolutely amazing. Um, but, but it's true. And I think that's a real message. I know we kind of start with elementary and I've got two primary age boys myself, but it's, it's so imperative for me to make sure that my juniors and seniors, when they leave, that's ingrained and that's so important as they move on to college and beyond. So um, just having their work online and, and really, you know, fine tuning it. That's a great point, Lisa. And not only does that kind of, you know, get them out in front of the game, you know, before it comes time to, you know, be in the workplace in your 20s if you're following kind of that typical career path. Um, but that can definitely help in other aspects of life too, being able to show off, you know, what you know and what your hobbies are, what your skills are. And uh, I know this is just kind of a quick shout out for anyone who's watching this as a recording, but there's a lot of work going on uh, in the digital badge space where that's kind of the vision and mission behind their work is helping kids be able to you know, document and capture, you know, these are my skills and also would lead to some kind of uh, e-portfolio connection there. And so we've talked a little bit and Lisa, you touched on this a lot in terms of maybe what kind of lessons or projects or units really lend themselves to student-centered learning, to interest-powered learning, to production-centered learning. So I wanted to get a sense of that from uh, Sean and Kim as well. What kind of typical formats are you finding work really well uh, for your kids, for your students um, that you know, lends itself to being interest-powered, production-centered? What are you seeing working? Um, for me, I think that there's a transition that's involved, and I think that for teachers who are looking to make that change, you can't just go into the room and say, hey, what do you want to do? You know, I, I think my students in the past, and this is in my own classroom, not just, the, not just other people's classrooms that I've seen. I think it's true and it's universal, but I know it's true for me, um, is that I would give them choices, and they understood that there was, like, choice in it, but there's a limit to that choice, you know? Like, I exercised a wide veto power, and I think that what's changed in my classroom now is that I grant them greater powers. It's altered thing, everything from, like, how they ask to go to the bathroom, which we don't. You're managing your studying, you're managing your work, and when you're independently working, if you need to take a break, you need to independently take that break. So, um... It's changed procedures, but I think that what's worked for my classroom is that we create a question or a problem. We have a discussion. Um, I do a lot of work right there in the beginning to contextualize and connect to make them see the immediate connection. And then we take that discussion and as a class form questions and turn them loose to answer the questions. And then from what they bring back, we pull issues from that. Um, and we start to, I, I, I like to call it just unpacking problems, you know. Um, the model that works best for social studies for me is having them get resources, evaluate those resources, discount those resources, and then take the quality, we sift, and then when we sift that quality down, um, we, we create a product. And, you know, I read Austin Kleon's books, and I have been to a lot of conferences on creation. That turned into not telling them what medium to produce. I don't say make a video, make a song, make a poster. What I say is what medium best matches what you've learned. 
you know how does that how would that learning that you've achieved best be expressed and what I found is that all of my work to narrowly put them in one place was really a barrier uh, all of telling them that it had to be a paper or it had to be a crossword puzzle or it had to be this or worse yet the, it had to be a worksheet all of those things were fences that I built around learning and so for me what I've learned is that when you tear down the fence uh, people run uh, in much broader places so uh, I think as a result my classes learn more than I used to teach they learn how to structure learning endeavors they learn how to decide what to express their learning in you know and of course I teach high school so um, it would have been hard for me to have accepted what I'm saying right now if you had asked me four years ago but the process of discovery has been really exciting and I, I think it's meaningful for my students too I think another way to approach approach that idea of um, interest-driven and production-centered is through projects, and um, we like to find ways for to have our students explore beyond um, their own experience and reach out and see what other people's lives are like and think about um, also the idea of action and how they can. Um, take action even at their young age and I'm just thinking of a project that we did last year which um, came out of a, we'd read a picture book called One Hen which is about microloans and as our students got really interested in this idea of a microloan and the fact that somebody could get a small amount of money and change their life and so they were really interested in the idea of raising money to um, fund a microloan and instead of doing the sort of typical thing which often happens in a community like the one I teach in, which is just ask your mom or dad if they can donate some money, um, we decided instead as a group that we would make sachets where students actually sewed little packets of cloth that they put lavender in. And then they went through the whole process of writing a letter asking permission of the principal to sell these sachets on campus. Um, explaining why this was a valuable use of time in class, going to other classrooms, explaining what they'd done and why they were doing it, um, writing blog posts, and actually making a video of their entire process and what they'd done, and putting it up to share with others um, in in our community and beyond, because they actually had them on their blog, so that they were they were really sharing their. Um, their their project their project they were so excited about it and they learned so many things and they could tell you all the all the many things they learned from money handling to needle handling to um, promoting themselves and and working collaboratively on movies and that that whole piece of it so I think projects can be another venue for um, student interests and also expanding their interests it's like Sean was just saying about choice we want to give them choices but a lot of times, my students don't even know what the choices are yet. So, helping them see some of the more op some of the more opportunities that they could have if that they hadn't considered yet because they haven't had that experience yet. I think you have to build to those choices. To add. I mean, you definitely have to construct to them. Mm -hmm. I have seniors right now, and it took me weeks to to um, think of, to build trust that we would follow through on those choices. And when you when you do, at first they make mistakes, I think, but they start to believe that those choices are real and they affect them, and then they start to carry more weight, and then I start to develop more quality. 
Um, I I have two. I just I have to talk about because they and they really kind of talk with both what um, Sean and Kim have kind of mentioned. So we have a an excellent um, world language department, and I, I adore all of them. I mean, all of our departments are amazing, but you know, I, I work really closely with our world language department. And one of the projects that Latin does is a Roman bath project, and it was really interesting because. This year, and this is, you know, a few years kind of going that we've polished things and changed things. And I really like what Sean said about, you know, that that kind of the fencing because we looked at last year's prompt and it said, like, create a cartoon storyboard, um, you know, showing how ancient Romans used the bathhouse. And now we changed it this year to you have been hired by blah, blah, blah to create illustrated instructions. So not only did it give it a role, it wasn't like you're creating a cartoon storyboard. It was very open-ended. And so it was really interesting was, you know, we had kids create Pinterest boards for this. We had kids create fake Instagram accounts. We had kids, um, you know, about the immensely amazing um, Minecraft projects that were very just over-the-top thorough with Roman baths. And... It was so fascinating to see that. And what we found was, because there were actually five different projects that they could choose from, and, and all were really open-ended, but the one that was a pamphlet, no matter, we're three years in, the one that was a pamphlet was always bad. Um, and and it just, you know, I mean, I think it's just the nature of that particular um, tool now. I think, you know, we're, we're kind of done with pamphlets and that sort of media. And so leaving it very open-ended to models and tutorials and really having kids, you know, say this is your role rather than create a storyboard. It's, it's really just an amazing, amazing sort of seeing all of these projects and seeing these creativity and stop motion and, and such a diverse um, group of projects. And the other one, and this I think kind of speaks to what Kim was talking about, we have a, a Vietnam project that our um, high school students do. I believe it's juniors and seniors. I could be wrong on that. I think it's maybe juniors. And what's really fascinating is they have to create a memorial video um, for one of the Vietnam veterans. And this has been going on for quite a few years now. And so the veterans that they're choosing are, are it, it's more difficult to find easily find content on these people. And so, I mean, talk about inquiry and things like this. There was this one student who was like, you know, I'm tired of all of these kids complaining about, you know, they can't find, they're not really digging. And she started making phone calls. You know, she called the high school and she found, you know, his family. And I mean, just the video that she put together, talk about not only authentic audience and, you know, digital storytelling and, you know, primary research, but every time I watch it, I cry. It's incredibly moving. And when I just, I think those sorts of projects are so much more, I mean, those are the things that kids are not only going to get the skills, the real world skills from, but they're going to remember. I don't remember the tests that I took, but some of the just amazing projects that I did, I not only remember those projects, but I remember the content that was threaded within those and all of the problems that I kind of worked through. And I think that's the power of really, you know, crafting these for students. 
And Lisa, speaking of our you know favorite four or five letter word tests or tests, mm -hmm. um, you know a lot of what I'm hearing you guys describe is you know definitely outside of the traditional instruction model of okay, I teach you something, you take a, a quiz or a test on it that's multiple choice, super easy to grade, you get your grade, we move on. It's a lot messier than that. It's a lot more involved. I mean, for example, how do you, you know, grade a Minecraft structure? So in these kinds of projects and approaches that you guys are taking, how does assessment fit in? Are you having to kind of recreate rubrics and grading scales all the time? Or is that something that others have kind of paved the way and you're maybe adopting a little bit? Mm -hmm. How does it all work? From the high school perspective, and um, I found that if we're going to create a project and the students are going to construct what that task is, um, then we should have a conversation and they should construct that. How do you grade that? What does it look like? What is it? And, and I find that the discussion to create, the, be it a rubric or a standard or a framework for grading, is more valuable than any rubric I ever passed out because the rubric was constructed by me. It's hard for them to argue with their own words and their own thoughts. And so when it comes to assessment of those things, one, I think that the creation, like your, my perception is that I assess throughout. I'm not lecturing and then coming in to check and see what you gained and absorbed. I'm watching you create. I'm seeing the process, not the product. So you, you start grading within the process. Here's the choices you made. This was a valid choice. What it's also done is it's unhinged my grading from the outward appearance of what they produce because it isn't, is it a sexy, well-designed video that you just had a really expensive program for? It's, I watched how hard you worked to, to get that expression. And so um, the construction being something that I'm sitting there present for, I feel like it's a lot easier to come to a grade. I feel like um, that grade is, is very accessible in a way that it wasn't when I had students work far away from me, produce a project, turn it in, and then I had to unpack if this well-polished thing was something that A, they did, B, they, they got a lot of help with, was it a parent who did it, um, you know, or are you just lucky enough to not have distractions at your home? Because the truth of the matter is, a lot of times the grades that we give are based upon the, the resources and structure of the home. Um, so I think that when I have them working in the classroom, the validity of my grades has, has improved quite a bit. I also feel like I have, I mean, I have the luxury of not having to give letter grades to my little guys, but I also feel like when kids are deeply invested and deeply engaged in learning, that they learn way more than what uh, we might have been expecting otherwise. Um, so I, I just feel like that that sense of when kids are really in these authentic tasks and learning because they're, they just can't, they just can't not learn. They go home and they learn some more and they come back and they share more with you and share more with their classmates and they're, they're, they're just so invested that in my experience I see that those same students they can manage to get by on their standardized tests that they need to do. It doesn't. It, it doesn't detract from their learning. It's. It's not like uh, the right answers on the worksheet are going to produce better learning than the projects and the interest-driven pieces are. So I, I, I'm convinced that when students are invested in learning, it makes a huge difference. It was. It was. Uh, 
I mean, just that, that very point that Lisa was making, that you remember the learning that mattered to you. The test that you took, that you studied for the night before, you might not remember at all. And that's what my own sons used to tell me all the time, like, oh, I already forgot that. The test was yesterday. Um, that's not the learning we want our kids to have. You know, I'm gonna, I'll throw out there that um, I don't know any parent who, when their kid is struggling, um, asks for a standardized test to fix it. And I don't want to criticize, I don't want to jump on and just start criticizing standardized tests. I know the world we live in and the reality of our situation, you know. Um, you have to come to terms with that to be in education these days. But I know that in all other ways, I can provide products that help expose the student to who they are and help them discover who they are. And I think that when you put them in a situation where they're making a lot of choices and they have a truly expressive piece, like my teaching is expressive. When I can't teach in the classroom, I'm, I'm, I miss it because it, it, in a way, helps me to stay in touch with myself. I like who I am as a teacher and a person and what I believe. And I think that projects like that help students to do that. And I always have teachers respond because, or excuse me, parents respond to that because they see their own children within that work. And when you see that, it's a very powerful reaction from them to, for a parent whose child struggles with assessments and tests or, or traditional classroom to have something where they, they come alive within that work. And that's always what I'm shooting for in class. So um, sometimes I get, you know, kind of invited. I see all different pieces of the projects from, you know, kind of showcasing, you know, a few tools that would lend themselves to, you know, what they're doing, you know, at the very beginning to kind of coming in mid, you know, way where they're actually working on things to coming in at the very end while they're presenting them. And, and two pieces, I feel, just overall are really integral, but, but very often they're, they're not part of projects. And one of them is having students create some sort of peer assessment, or, or, and it could be a, a Google form, something, or a Padlet board, or something like that, that is connected, or even, you know, they've created a Kahoot, or they've created some sort of assessment that goes with their project, because I don't think that they always know how to ask the right questions. Um, to get the right kinds of answers, and I think that's so powerful. I mean, we we kind of all do that. That that's just what we do. You know, we put something out there and we ask people about it and we get feedback. But I feel like that's a piece that sometimes is is missing out of these. Um, not only just okay, hey everybody, what what do you think? But having the students actually, these are the three questions I want answered about my project, and I and not only within the classroom but beyond. I think that's really powerful. And then the other piece, because I just had a keynote yesterday, and this is kind of what my, my brain does all the time, is I'm constantly thinking after I present and after I speak to somebody, what went really well? What could go better? How can I change it for the next time? And I think that's a piece, that self-reflection, which we all know and we do, but I don't think it's always built within every project and and I think there's an e-portfolio you know is, is a really great place to kind of you know and blogging but I, I think that's just as as you know as important um, you know as, as all of these as the final product and I'm gonna quote Austin Cleon again um, because I adore him and I adore his books and and I think you know he really speaks to us especially at a secondary level he had a quote um, I think is in his second book that talked about um, people want to see how the sausage is made and I think that's another piece too. You know, it's like we have this end product, 
but I want to know how it was made and what changes you made and things that happened throughout that process. There was one that did um, hyperlapse and it was I mean just blew my mind that she drew everything and so I was like well how many takes did this take to you? How did you set it up? What was the lighting? You know did you storyboard it before because looking at the end product you you have no idea what went into it and I think these are all pieces that when we really focus on them you know it's it's so integral to have that because that's really what I learned from when I work on projects and just because I have like a cool Canva thing link out there doesn't mean that I didn't have four on the you know the cutting room floor I didn't change these three things and so I just I think those things have a lot of merit and are, are kind of unsung heroes you know, I'll, I'll add to that last comment by saying that when you do projects that they actually care about, the finish line isn't the end. You know, the due date isn't over. And like you said, when, you know, I gave a discussion down in um, Louisiana at the end of the summer, and it was some, they asked me to do something that I just am absolutely passionate about anyway. How do you differentiate? How do you change? How do you adjust? And when I was done, on the plane, rather than like sitting back and doing nothing, I sat there and I revised everything about that presentation to make it more effective and because it really means something to me. And with my students who do work that's meaningful to them, I find that they will repost it again. I've had blog posts where they created products. 50% of my students fixed something when they were given feedback by their, their classmates. Um, and projects keep getting resubmitted and it isn't the end when it's something that you're passionate about. And I'm always working to create work in the classroom that when I say we're done and we move on, I'm going to have to fight for them to refocus themselves because they're still so invested in it. And they won't leave it alone. I, I, I don't want um, them turning it in to be them washing their hands and you know pulling the Pontius Pilate on the work that they just created. So I, I really am so glad that Sean said that because I just have one more thing kind of add to that is as we're seeing more and more student publishing online, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm a huge proponent of TAC. I think it's really well done and there's so many different things that you can do with that sort of um, online web tool. And so some of our kids did that. It was so interesting because he had done one on archery and it was just incredibly well done. And he said, oh, TAC saw it posted it on their featured section so I went back in and made some changes to it because now more and more people are seeing it not just the 25 kids in my classroom and and I think that's gonna be you know we may not even be talking about that in five ten years from now but it's it's very real right now because we're kind of on the cusp of, of what that looks like so I think there's a lot of merit and, and power to that and I'm really glad that Sean kind of um, addressed that I want to roll back just one minute to the role of reflection because I feel like it's oftentimes the thing that gets pushed out because of time that you know there's time for all the other parts of whatever's going on in the classroom but reflection is I've, I've learned over the years the critical element when when students learn that they actually are given time on a consistent basis to reflect on their own learning they learn that reflection matters and you can see a huge difference in the classroom when that time is provided on a consistent basis you can't just expect that reflection is going to happen like like we do on the airplane on the way home reflection has to actually get the priority of time in the classroom because if you don't give time to it then students know it doesn't actually matter and um, I just feel like that's a critically important piece that 
that actually needs to be said probably more often rather than less often. I don't think most students have opportunities to reflect on an ongoing basis, and I think it's critically important. Or we have them reflect, but after class, when they go home, um, making it seem like it's less significant. Yeah. That's a great point, and it seems to be this kind of aspect of helping students you know, take pride in their work, and that seems to be a little bit more natural and an easier sell when, Kim, I think you mentioned when they're doing authentic tasks, or Sean, when they're doing projects that they actually care about. And I thought that was a great line of thought that I wanted to touch on a little bit more. Uh, obviously, with you know the Connected Learning Alliance and the Connected Learning work, uh, that we're doing, we kind of have this little phrase of, you know, make learning relevant and connect in-school learning to life outside. So it's not just this kind of, you know, one-and-done atmosphere of, okay, I got my assignment done and I move on to the next thing. And so I wanted to see in terms of the three of you, what maybe tactics or strategies or maybe even advice would you have for educators who want to make that learning in school feel more relevant to life outside of it. I mean, what's been working for the three of you? I, I think um, for me it's about thinking about what you ask students to do and I think we've we've kind of said this all along. It's about giving students opportunities to do the real work of readers and writers and scientists and mathematicians and historians and not just um, open the textbook and read this chapter and answer these questions. Like we need to reconceive what it means to do school so that school is a about authentic tasks that there's a reason to learn the skills behind them because you're doing things that matter. You really are delving into whatever that um, discipline is so that um, you know the skills are a natural part of the process and I, I think that that's the hardest part of, of um, you know if a teacher says I want to learn to do this I don't think our curriculum that we tend to have delivered on our doorstep does that very well and so the advice I would give to somebody who wants to do that is reach out and find yourself uh, a support person, a, another teacher at your school site, uh, somebody virtually in your Twitter connection, on Facebook, whoever, how, whoever you can find who can support you in making these, these changes and these moves that I would highly encourage any teacher to do. I, I think you touch on something important with support because it's hard to re-envision re your classroom and alter what you're doing when you feel like it might be questioned. And, you know, there was a point where I gained a lot of approval from teachers at other schools I've worked at. And prior to that, I was afraid. You know, I would come and tell people what I was doing. I'd share that I was chatting with classrooms across the country. And I was really kind of worried because I, I, I thought it was awesome, but, you know, that doesn't always translate to approval. Um, as far as my classroom, I'm going to go ahead and say that audience is so important. Because if you want students to see work as valid, you're going to have to, like, I, I can't think of how many times I encourage students to pour their heart into their work only for it to reside in a pile. And if the destination for the work that you do is a pile, where I grade it, check it, hand it back, and yet another pile, 
Like, why would they invest in that? It, it's a dead-end street, and that all is going away. And when you give it back to them, it may make it to their locker or it may not. And so I think that that audience is important because if you can make um, the – where will that work reside? Where is the showcase? And if you showcase their work, they will pour themselves into what they do. Um, you know, I talk about it probably too much, but I have a student whose video has gotten over 50,000. It's like 55,000 views. You go ahead and try and get 500 views on a video. When that thing blew up, that student um, came alive, and everything she and everyone else did blew up. So I created um, a Hall of Fame through a thing link of some of the best projects I've ever gotten. I share it with my students as much as I can, and I promise that uh, if you can do some quality work, if we agree on a class, we will go out there and try and get 500, 1,000 views because that work makes the time that they spend valid. You know, their time matters just as much as our time in the class matters, and we have to give them tasks that, you know, celebrate the time that they put into the work that they do. And an audience is a key part of getting that to happen. So, Sean, you touched on this aspect of, you know, just because something you're doing is cool does not necessarily lead to it being, you know, approved by admins, approved right. by parents, or supported. So I wanted to see in each of your own three kind of trajectories as teachers, what has been that process of kind of bringing up these new approaches or, um, you know, having your practice be a little bit more student-centered, hands-off kind of guide on the side. What's been the process for getting that approval or you know explaining to admins and parents this is what we're gonna do now has it been a lot of pushback or is it pretty easy to explain you know what the benefits are gonna be I think um first of all I wanna say I didn't answer the <laughs> the last question because I really felt like Sean and Kim you know nailed it and I'm gonna let them um, just leave it there I don't have to have a last word or anything on that um, so I, I do want to mention this though because it, it comes up a lot it comes up well how do you quantify this what does it look like in in grades and scores and things like that and and it's very I mean it's very difficult to quantify creativity and what the, these you know four C's and all this sort of things look like that being said um, there was a graphic that I believe it was from Ken K's um, ASCD 2013 session and it basically had student A on one side and it said student A is really good at math, science, English, and social studies. Student B has content mastery, which obviously covers all of these things, but they also are able to think critically. They're effective communicators, they're creative, they're innovative, and they're effective collaborators. Not only which one would you have in your classroom, you know, which one, how would you feel if you were a parent? Because it's also, you know, it's a parent side too. They want to, they just want what's best for their kids. You know, they want them to get into, you know, Ivy League schools and, and have all of those opportunities. And they want to make sure that whatever we're doing is, is valuable to that end. So I think that's a really important piece. And even if you start Googling, like, what do employers want and things like that? Again, I'm at a high school, so, you know, that's obviously the next transition. Um, I also have a seven-year-old. I'm not Googling what do employers want for him right now. But, um, <laughs> You know, what do employers want? If you just start Googling articles like that right now, you're going to see communication. You're going to see problem solving. You're going to see, you know, things of that nature. You're not, confidence, um, creativity, because those things, you know, they mean so much more than the content knowledge. 
And and one more thing I'm going to mention. I'm going to see if I can find the links for these. But um, there was an AMA 2012 um, critical skills survey. And what was really interesting is they surveyed 768 managers and other executives about the importance of four C's to their organization. And overwhelmingly, critical thinking was like 69%, communication was 75%, um, collaboration was 60%, and creativity and innovation um, was 50%. These were all skills that they agreed that not only do they want in their employees, but they're actually assessing these skills once they have employees. And overwhelmingly, like 75% of them said, we see this in the next five years still remaining to be true. And so, you know, I think those sort of things, I know they're somewhat quantifiable um, when you really start looking at other sectors. And we know that because that's what we do every day. I mean, inherently, that's what we do. That, that's what connected educators do. But I think that's really important to not only model as an educator, but to really talk about those things because, we know it, but it's something that's really integral for our parents and administrators to just be reminded of, especially in the secondary um, realm. When you're a connected educator or you have a connected classroom, you're not just connecting to education. You're connecting to parents and community. And, you know, um, I got feedback from people about the video that I told you about who had kids who went to school 10 years before and were on Facebook and they saw it there. You know, so we're connecting way beyond just these narrow streams of educational thought that we're talking about. We're talking about community thought in colleges. A lot of the um, webinars that I'm doing and, and sessions I'm doing now are things like um, with universities and teachers who are prepping to go into uh, education just because, you know, we're branching out. It isn't just the high school or the community district. Uh, so that's a part of connection that I think is important. Um, and I think that what Lisa was saying about what we want, another thing is fluency, the ability to translate that which we have into the format which is needed and be that one form of a file into another form of a file or that which is material into that which is digital, the digital into the physical, you know, um, or the idea into the physical. I mean, the concept of creating something on AutoCAD and then printing it in a three-day printer, we can translate any idea in any form into another representation of that idea in a different form and that is what I think is a, a powerful skill and I think that you know I, I don't want to criticize traditional forms of education I moved to a new school and I, I see where tradition is important and there's stability there but the movement and the transformation towards what the future is is really what all this connected conversation is about and the pace at which you move really is in, is dependent upon your community uh, it, schools are democratic places but having that discussion and starting to make the choices that move us towards what the future will really be, that type of fluency, is something that we as teachers can't avoid. Um, we have to start the discussion and, and meet resistance. So to go back to your conversation about how to convince um, administration, show results. Do some things and show results. Ask for the right to experiment. Um, when you show them a product that's inspirational to students, um, it will be inspirational to parents and the parents will put the pressure. The schools that have been most successful with one-to-one -one programs that I know of have been those where the excitement of the students has translated into absolute support by parents and then you're off to the races and there aren't very many questions at that point. And Kim, is there anything different about kind of the explanation process or introduction process in an elementary school setting for you? 
I, I don't think so because I think the the bottom line is um, as Sean brought up, I mean, what parent doesn't want their child to be successful? Um, and Lisa said that too. I mean, that's that's what this is all about. And when parents see how engaged their children are in the learning process and how excited they are about school, um, that's what they want. And then they put the pressure on the administration then to help support that. So I do find that parents are a great source of um, of support as long as you explain what you're doing. Why are you doing this? What, why, why is this important to your child? Why do we want them to do these things? Because they, otherwise they think school is that, that thing that they experience. You know, how come you don't give a Friday spelling test? Well, here's another way of supporting your child as a speller, right? Um, you know, when, you're, when your child has an audience for their writing, they actually care about their spelling in ways that they never did when it goes to that pile that Sean talked about. So I, I think those things are really important and we have to make sure that we're, we're talking to parents so that they know what, what we're all about too. You know, as y'all were kind of thinking about this, Simon, his TED Talk, um, Simon Sinek, his TED Talk on um, Start With The Why kind of comes to mind because, you know, at the, there's a reason that I, I moved my entire family to the district that I'm currently working for and there's a reason that I, I stay there. And that reason is I feel like the why and the vision for what we're doing has always been at the forefront of all the decision making at the administration level and and down. And so I have been in other districts where it's not that case. And, and I'm not saying that you can't start in the classroom and move up, but I think when when it's here and the vision is 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 aligned and, and people are starting with the why because we really want our kids to be connected and we want them to be 21st century learners and and all of these sorts of things when you really start with that as a district um, it, it just kind of makes everything a little bit easier and it's it, it's just it's the values and, and that sort of thing so um, I, I do really think even when you're you're choosing social networks and you're choosing tools and you're connecting with people and and choosing projects and building all of these things it's really not, hey, we're going to do Minecraft today. It's always starting with why are we doing this and then moving to how are we going to do this and then, you know, what are we going to choose to kind of move us through this. So I, it, it's a really great TED Talk if you haven't seen it. I'm sure both of y'all or all three of y'all have. Um, and it, it's quite excellent. So um, I, I think that's a good place to kind of I think we're at the top of the hour anyway, so <laughs> I feel like I'm top of the morning to you. <laughs> I have like tea or something. <laughs> well, I think that was an absolutely great, you know, challenge slash reminder for everyone that's checking this out. And like you mentioned, you know, 60 minutes as usual just kind of flies by in these conversations. And obviously, we couldn't get to everything we wanted to talk to talk about. But hopefully, this is a great, you know, jumping off conversation point for a lot of people. And I wanted to just briefly thank the three of you for, you know, your own time, energy, and insights. Uh, personally, I've learned a lot. So thank you very much. And for those that are checking this out live, we're going to have a full video recording of this webinar conversation available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv and along with other curated content from this conversation on the way that you can share with your peers and in your networks and those that you want to get connected into this growing community of uh, connected educators that's happened 
um, throughout this past month in October. And this wraps up the final webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean that our conversations just have to drop out and end here. Uh, encourage everyone to get involved in the ongoing conversation on Twitter, uh, our favorite tool, it sounds like, in this particular group, using the hashtag CE14 and also uh, the hashtag Connected Learning. And really encourage you to also go and make new friends uh, within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. And if you'd like to know about more webinars that are coming up from EdTech Teacher, check out their website, www.edtechteacher.org. And as always, for Connected Learning TV, you can check us out at www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for our email newsletters. So again, thank you all so much, and I'm sure I will see you online in some form or another. Thanks. Bye. Bye.